This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. And I am here with Valeska Griffiths. We know each other so well, it seems a little funny to be so formal with you. Hi, friend. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm okay. You had some sports tonight? I had some sports ball. Yes, it's true. <laughs> okay, so you and I know each other extremely well, but in the event that someone does not know who you are, can you give us a quick introductory bio? Everyone knows who I am. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I am the founder and co-editor of anatomyofascream.com with Joe. Yes. (laughs) I am the executive editor of Grimm Magazine and the newest member of the editorial team at House of Leaves Publishing. Just very exciting. It's a nice broad range, but very complimentary. I think so too. I'm pretty excited about all of it. So House of Leaves, for people who don't know, it's a UK publication, right? But it's academic articles on horror. Mm -hmm. The first book is coming out in August. It's called Scared Sacred, Idolatry, Religion, and Worship in the Horror Film. Pretty excited about that. And it's got a ton of really well-known horror writer contributors, including people like Andrea Subasati and... Alex West. Alex West, I think Anya Stanley's in there. Yep, I was just about to say that. (laughs) Yeah, good stuff, particularly for people who might be teaching academics or who are looking to beef up their horror IQ in terms of uh, some more scholarly publications. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's written pretty accessibly, I think, a lot of the chapters, so... I don't know, I'd recommend it for everyone, but I'm biased, so (laughs) take that with a grain of salt. That's what we're here for. It's all about the self-promotion. So you have some questions for me. I do, yes. So you've already addressed where you're writing. So tell me how it all got started. How did you become a horror fan? Where did it all begin? Well, horror has always been my mother's favorite genre, so I spent a lot of time as a kid being like simultaneously repulsed and fascinated by, you know, VHS boxes of horror film. Oh my gosh, yes. You'll like this one. I was hugely terrified of Pinhead for many of my formative years. Like the cover of Hellraiser was one that particularly burrowed into my mind and subconscious. Although now I love the film, it was just like, I did not want anything to do with Pinhead for so much of my childhood. Oh, it's terrifying to a child. I can't even imagine. I know. But I was always attracted to, like, dark fairy tales growing up, and I became interested in true crime really early on, like, reading about Albert Fish way before I should have kind of early on. Mm-hmm. And then in my tweens and teens, I started getting into horror films. I really enjoyed, like, the 90s teen horror cycle, which Alex West has written about extensively, supernatural films and classic horror, and a lot of 80s stuff, too, like cheesy stuff like The Howling, Basically, like, anything I could get my hands on. So you mentioned that it was your mother who kind of introduced this to you. Um, She didn't mean to. She didn't mean to. (laughs) (laughs) She would watch them when she would think that I was asleep or in other parts of the house or just not paying attention. So it's not like she was a negligent parent or anything. I don't want to give that impression at all. 
it's actually very on point for a number of other people that I've interviewed where it's almost been a side effect where they were either in the room or they shouldn't have been watching or they were just a little bit too young. I don't think anybody blames their family or their siblings or parents, but it all seems like we do really have our families to blame for this fixation. Look what they created. They've made <laughs> monsters. <laughs> Beautiful monsters. Though. Beautiful monsters. Gorgeous. So you named a really broad range of different types of films. Did you end up settling on a particular kind that you were fixated on? I guess I could say that I really do still really love the supernatural. I mean, I'll watch pretty much anything as long as it has good writing. <laughs> I'm not super picky. <laughs> and yet sometimes that is a high standard. <laughs> Especially with Netflix. They have so much crap on there. That is a different conversation that I feel like you and I have had several times in different written formats. I mean, with the Netflix and Kill column, I kind of have to wade through a lot of the garbage to get to the good stuff. This is true. Let no one say that being a horror fan is not a true labor of love because you have to wade through a bunch of garbage to get to some of the good stuff. I watch it so you don't have to. <laughs> so what is it about the supernatural stuff that attracts you so much? I think it kind of ties into my love of gothic horror. Mm. Also, there's a difference between watching a film about a home invasion versus a film about a haunting. I mean, I know that you love a gothic horror because you love supernatural elements and that you love ghosts and you love mystics and... Family secrets. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the writing then. So you had this early introduction into horror films. How did you begin writing about them? I launched Anatomy of a Scream about three years ago when I was in a really unhealthy relationship with a certain element of emotional abuse. And it was kind of a therapeutic outlet and a way to cope with the situation, which was hugely damaging to my self-esteem. So having the blog kind of offered me a way to remind myself that I probably had some pretty okay thoughts in my head and that there were people that actually, you know, enjoyed what I had to say. And about a year in, I got out of the relationship and decided to open up the blog to other writers as a way of, of highlighting other women's voices. And I brought on some other writers and eventually decided that the next step was print. So the first issue of Grimm was published in February 2018 to celebrate Women in Horror Month. And now we have like this amazing, wonderful assortment of talented writers that are featured in both Anatomy and Grimm, and I couldn't be happier with that. So was the intention always to make it a very feminist-oriented blog? Oh yeah, 100%. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I kind of got the idea when I met Alex West at a New Year's party held by a mutual friend of ours, and she told me about Faculty of Horror. I went to school for women's studies, and I hadn't really thought of taking my love of horror and my love of feminism, I guess, and turning it into this wonderful little gooey ball of academia and throwing it out into the world. So when I heard about Faculty of Horrors, it clicked and it was just like, this is amazing. This is something that I want to do myself. So I just kind of started writing and then didn't really stop. What about the idea of opening it up to other people? Was there ever a thought of just keeping it private and just keeping it not for yourself, but having it be a dedicated personal blog? Well, I did that for the first year. And I don't know, I just I wanted to make it a bit bigger, I guess. There were other voices that I wanted to showcase. At first, I was thinking of just having guest contributors come in, but then the idea of having a collective really appealed to me, so it just snowballed from there. And then print. I mean, print is such a unique, I mean, I'm hesitant to say novelty. I mean, it is now, these days. 
for sure. Sadly, yeah. I guess I just I didn't want to devalue it as something like, oh wow, like look, oh, it's a print cute. magazine. It's print. <laughs> yeah. In fact, <laughs> I mean, we're both intimately aware of just how much freaking work goes into putting a print publication together. Oh, these if days. I'd known beforehand, I would never have gotten into it. Every issue, there's always a moment <laughs> no. where I'm like, this is the last one. <laughs> I cannot do this anymore. <laughs> this is the end. No, you're supposed to be encouraging more people to go into print and saying, yes, other people I can I mean, do when this. you're holding the finished issue and it finally like arrives and you're flipping through the pages, it's all worth it for sure. And then I start putting out the call for pitches for the next one. A never ending cycle. It's worth it. It is worth it. I fully recommend anyone who wants to get into print, just go ahead, do it, dive in. I will not discourage you and tell you... Well, I will tell you one thing. Outsource as much as you possibly can. You cannot do everything. Right. I think one of the greatest assets of the horror community is being able to touch base with each other and saying maybe it's bringing on other writers, maybe it's getting recommendations about vendors, maybe it's... Maybe it's hiring Joe to do the editing because he's amazing. There might just be a bit of that. <laughs> we should also give a big shout out to Gina Freitig as well because she does a lot of good work on the she magazine does. as well. And Cece for doing the covers. Cece Stapleton. Follow oh her gosh. on Instagram. She's amazing. And taking commissions, yes. so treat yourself. Mm. Nice plug. I like it. Yes. Give Cece all the work. Her covers have been amazing. Oh my god, especially this one right now for uh, Our Bodies, Our Health. Yes. It gives me the feels. It makes me feel odd <laughs> when I look at it. I'm like, there's something unique and odd and uncomfortable and confrontational. So and confrontational. But it's exactly what it should be for that particular issue. It's so... She's a genius. And a <laughs> lovely person. And a genuinely fantastic individual. Yeah. Let's just make this podcast all about Cece. No, it's supposed to be all about you. Damn it. You know how uncomfortable I am about that. <laughs> this is true. That's why I'm forcing you to do this. So. I appreciate it. Okay. So February, Women in mm -hmm. Horror Month. You mentioned that it was an impetus for launching Grimm. But what else does the month mean to you? Well, yeah, Grimm was actually going to be like an annual magazine just focusing on promoting during that month, but kind of turned into a little bit more than that. What does a month mean to me? It means that we needed to do more throughout the other 11 months to spotlight women's stuff. Mm -hmm. As Becky Belzile, Belzile said on Twitter the other day, bitch, I'm a woman in horror every month. And that said, right. I do love the fact that it's uh, happening during my birthday month. So that works out well for me. It's a nice coincidence. Yeah. It's been interesting asking that question of people because the, I hesitate to say critical consensus, but the general feeling seems to be a mixture of appreciation for the month and everything that it manages to accomplish, but also this idea that there are 11 other months in the year and why shouldn't we also be acknowledging women creators and women writers and let's not keep it to just one month a year. Yeah, it's both inspiring and frustrating in that way. My concern is always that people use it as an excuse to say, let's give a bunch of attention to women during the month of February. And then that way I can go back to my quote unquote horror masters and disregard the contributions of women the rest of the year. Like we're like a special interest group. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like that's not where horror is at this point. Or maybe it's just that I don't want it to be there at this point. <laughs> I mean, it's getting better for sure. We're seeing a lot more female filmmakers getting a chance to share their vision. We see more films dealing with race and queerness in thoughtful and intelligent ways. And it's super necessary, and I'd love to see a lot more of that. But, I mean, baby steps, I guess. Yes. Not that I'm saying it's okay we're only doing baby steps, but I don't know. 
do better, people. Come on. We're finding our way through the dark, but also whenever there's opportunities to recognize and lift up people and their work, I think we need to be making more of a concerted effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So that is actually the next question. So how do you feel about the state of the contemporary horror genre? Well, like I said, we're getting there very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead to the next question that I think you're going to ask about what films I would say push us in that direction. Absolutely. Get Out should be required viewing for everyone, I think. Oh gosh, yes. Revenge, Raw, and MFA are absolutely phenomenal films. And in case people don't know those films... Well, Revenge and MFA are rape-revenge films that are actually made by female filmmakers, which is a huge difference, believe mm -hmm. me. And Raw is just this amazing coming-of-age film that I feel like it's so talked about and like hyped up that most people have at least heard of it. I also more recently really loved Cam and Blew My Mind, and I think that Cam is a really important film for the way that it humanizes sex workers, which is a group of people who don't really get that privilege a lot. So I would love to see more of that type of treatment in the future. Mm -hmm. I just did a review for a film, and I'm not going to name names, but they actually use the word prostitute in their logline. And when I did my review, I changed it because I was like, we don't say that word anymore. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was a mixture of Cam and My Favorite Murder that educated me in saying like, nope, there's actually a more appropriate term that doesn't dehumanize them, that doesn't diminish them, that actually makes them real human beings. Who just happen to have a job that's sex work. That's all it is. Exactly. Yeah. Such a North American concept too. But Ugh, Don't get me started. <laughs> Any other notable films that you think are worth checking out or that people have been sleeping on? I mean, I really loved The Endless. I know that a lot of people weren't really hugely into it, but I thought it was great. I wouldn't really say it's a feminist film, but it's not really a, not a feminist film either. This is true. Uh, Jennifer's Body, which would have been my first choice to do this podcast on, but it was taken by someone else, which is fine. <laughs> You're uh, not bitter at all. <laughs> I'm not bitter. No, no. I love the film that I chose for this one as well, so... That's okay. And you've got a great piece on Jennifer's body if people want to check it out in Grim issue number two. And also on anatomyofascream.com. Which I referenced in my other podcast. I really loved that episode, by the way. Oh, good. That episode of Horror Queers, <laughs> which you can find on iTunes. This is terrible. I don't know the episode number, but... <laughs> it's terrible. It's all too self-serving. I'm editing this all out. <laughs> no, keep it in. People need to listen to your amazing projects. So... I did tell you that you weren't allowed to talk about Jennifer's body because somebody else is talking about it. I kicked and screamed and I ultimately accepted it. I still managed to wrangle you on here anyway. And you selected a secondary follow-up film that you wanted to talk Let's about. Let's not call it secondary. That makes it sound like it's second place. <laughs> it's a co-first place Okay. Film. So you picked another film that you would happily discuss. And that was... I chose The Craft. So why did you pick The Craft? It's basically the foundational text of my life. Like, that is a strong out-of-the-gate statement. I am a woman of a certain age, which means that I was a certain age when it came out, which means that I was completely obsessed with it and the soundtrack, and I joined a coven in high school, and that film is just a big deal. Okay, so walk me through this. What is it about this film that resonates with women of a certain age, women who are invested in horror, and I'm assuming it's something to do with that supernatural wish fulfillment angle? Question mark. 
Well, the first thing we have to do is divide the film into two halves, because it's really two films in one. The first half of the film is all about female bonding and empowerment and finding your power. And then the second half, we don't have to talk about it much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second film feels like the studio-imposed condemnation, right? Where it's like, we can't yeah. have these women celebrate and uplift each other. We have to have them turn against each other. Because they transgress this whole, like safe femininity and become overly ambitious and i'm talking about nancy here of mm -hmm. course and power focused she asks for too much apparently <laughs> and she has like this masculine drive for power which has to be punished rather than rewarded unfortunately right whereas the other ones are using their power in self-defense or to become pretty or desirable to get the popular boy to like them I don't know. Nancy got the rough end of that stick, I think. She really did. And there's an interesting class connotation associated with that. Oh, absolutely. It's very telling, right? Like, it's very much a film of its time set in the mid-90s when, I mean, I hesitate to use the word woke, but in a way, <laughs> it's very much a middle-class white girl kind of film, right? That kind of ties into the more recent debacle with numerous conventions advertising the craft reunions, mm -hmm. which are not really reunions because one girl did not get invited. And that would be Rachel True, who absolutely should be on every single panel. But for some reason, and we all know what that reason is, she just doesn't seem to be invited. Yeah, it's because she's the only person of color in this really mm -hmm. white film. And just to clarify, we're not harping on the film itself. I think the film has a lot of really interesting ideas about femininity, about young girls discovering their power, about the bonds of female sisterhood. But the way that the narrative has played out recently has been just really disappointing. And gross, really gross. She didn't name any conventions particularly when she brought this up on Twitter, but a lot of conventions apparently have been pushing back and saying she was quote unquote out of line yeah. for bringing it up, which... Oh, God. Which would almost be hysterical if it wasn't so infuriating. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just really angry about it. No, and to even suggest that she's out of line for talking about something that directly affects her livelihood. And like you've said, the film is a big deal and it really speaks to a lot of people. Like there's a reason that these actresses are getting booked for these conventions because it's a beloved film. And to say that one of the four principal cast members is less important or should not even be invited is, I mean, it's rude, but it's also like... It sends a message. Yeah, it's, hello, systemic racism still present in 2019. Absolutely. Which I just can't even believe is still an issue as we're talking about the success of Get Out and Jordan Peele and, you know, Nia DaCosta getting Candyman and... It's like, how are we making strides in some regards and not others? And... But I mean, also in the film, we don't see any, like, there are no scenes with Rochelle's family, and we get that with the other girls, but apparently her scene was cut, Yeah, which is unfortunate. I never knew that until she said it publicly, and I'm ashamed to admit it never even occurred to me that I was like, oh, how come we're not seeing Rochelle's family? But it's very evident that decisions were made based on certain conditions for that mm -hmm. very mid-90s film, right? So disappointing. So thinking about the positives, what are some of the other things that you like about it? Like, how come you hold it up as this cherished text? My friend Laura 
from the Bloody Mary Film Festival, I don't want to butcher her last name, but she wrote a really great piece in a past issue of Grimm about female bonding and the occult, which really comes into play in this film. I think we all remember having sleepovers where you'd have a seance or you'd play with a Ouija board or you'd try to do some rudimentary spells, especially after the movie came out. And it was just this amazing uh, bonding ritual. I was just going to ask you if you yourself ever underwent some of those experiences in real life. Like, does the film mirror your experience of growing up? To a certain extent, I would say. I think it more mirrors my life now than (laughs) when it first came out. But yeah, there was definitely... I've always been like drawn to that sort of thing. I like to say that in another life, I was a Victorian medium. I think you would be a fantastic medium. (laughs) Oh, I would have the best dresses. Specialty Ouija boards. Ouija boards. I actually do have a specialty Ouija board right now. I don't want to do another plug, but there's this company that makes these really adorable ones, and they have different ones for different seasons. So they have like a Christmas one and a Halloween one. So mine actually has pumpkins on it. It's adorable. I'm too scared to actually use it, but it's a nice conversation piece. This is good. We've learned our lesson from the various possession films, right? You wouldn't even let me put it in your luggage when we were coming back from Salem. This is true. You're a scaredy cat, too. I I know better than to fuck with the spirits. <laughs> you drag me to seances. You love that seance. You have broadened my levels of comfort with the supernatural. We'll put it that way. And you've done the same for me with podcasts. So I guess we're even, aren't we? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Anything else about the craft that comes to mind? We could talk a little bit about toxic masculinity. Absolutely. I feel like that's a big feature of that film. Definitely. The idea of like stalking as romance and unwanted persistence as a form of seduction and the conflation of love and sex or love and violence sexual assault in uh, Chris's storyline. Kind of interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Skeet Ulrich is in both The Craft and Scream because he was such an all-American kind of boyfriend. But in both of those films, he's ultimately completely terrible. Well, I mean, what's more all-American than a violent male? (laughs) Yeah, I said what I said. And I fully support you in that because there has been (laughs) nothing to disprove you otherwise. I wish I could be happy about that, but I'm not. No, let's not celebrate men. (laughs) (laughs) The Faculty of Horror had a really great episode on witches where they talked a lot about the conflation of love and sex. So I recommend people seek that out. Mm -hmm. I think it was like episode 15 or something. It's interesting how often that comes up in films about witchcraft, right? Like the idea of love spells. Yeah, I mean, even in Haxon, that's like one of the first segments when uh, she tries to get the friar to fall in love with her and he just starts chasing her around violently. It's terrifying how often love and sex and violence are conflated. And then when you throw in witchcraft, it always ends up becoming a bit of a be careful what you wish for situation. Well, I think a lot of films really romanticize and glamorize rape, which is a huge part of that problem. And also like the romantic comedy expectations, like the way that we set up courtship. Oh, you're absolutely right. Like, romantic comedies they almost set up rape and sexual violence as a punchline and then horror films take it to that next level where the punchline becomes the body count Mm -hmm. and we wonder where people get these ideas of like how they're supposed to court people Hmm. i think that romantic comedies are the real horror actually (laughs) you are not wrong and yet they are suffering at the box office and horror continues to thrive oh poor kate hudson (laughs) whatever will she do 
I miss Kate Hudson. I mean, you should buy some of her yoga clothing. Okay, no, I'm not doing that. She and Jessica Alba can go off and do their own thing. <laughs> what is Jessica Alba up to lately? I feel like she was Harvey Weinstein. She was huge for a while, but then all of a sudden just... This is true. She did have a very strong relationship to Dimension oh, with the Sin City stuff. Alba. But she's, I think, a multi-millionaire based on her skincare stuff. Oh, I didn't even know she had a skincare Oh, line. yeah. She's very successful with that. Oh, good for her. Yeah. I mean, she's come out kind of okay. She hasn't publicly disclosed anything, so... I don't know. I just, I feel bad for every woman who was working in the industry during the time he was active. And unfortunately, I don't think it's just him, but... Yeah, I was going to follow up with that. I just feel bad for women in any industry, really. Yeah. I just feel bad for women. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why you have a magazine and why you have a website. And a very confrontational cover on my latest issue. Hmm. I... Hmm. I wouldn't say it's confrontational. What? Use your no, words. No, <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's confrontational. I would say that it is challenging and it gives you pause and it makes you think and... Okay, maybe it is confrontational, but it's in, <laughs> it's in the right way. It's in all the right spirit. No, I agree. Like the whole purpose, I think, that CC came up with and you came up with. Oh, no, it's all CC. I take no credit for the cover. She's <laughs> The magic is all hers. Yeah, I think it's just the right amount of, ooh, okay, I'm taken aback, I feel uncomfortable, I've got to work through some things, and I think that it's serving all the right purposes in that regard. I kind of feel like we should be talking less about a photograph on a podcast. <laughs> this is true. Unless you want to put a link to the cover in your show notes. I can 100% do that. <laughs> you 100% should. <laughs> Okay, so if people want to follow you or pitch the site or pitch Grimm, how can they get a hold of you? If you want to follow me and take in some of my lit content on Twitter, you can find me at BitchcraftTO, and you can find Anatomy at AOAS underscore XX, which is also the Instagram handle. Grimm Magazine has its own Twitter, this is Grim Mag. And if you want to pitch, you can go to the contact form on anatomyofascream.com and both Joe and I will get a copy of it and then we can silently judge you. <laughs> or we will laud you for your great idea. And as of this moment, pitches are actually open for issue number five, right? Which will be based on zombies. Yes. So if you have something to say about the shambling undead or the running undead, whichever undead appeals to you, then we would love to hear it. It's true. And bear in mind, of course, that we are most interested in feminist perspectives or queer inclusive perspectives or feminist queer inclusive perspectives. Should they arise? <laughs> I mean, we could go on, but I think you get the idea. This is true. Just don't talk to us about Rick Grimes and The Walking Dead. Uh, I would be okay with The Walking Dead article, but just one. <sighs> so if you're going to pitch one, make it a good one. Right. All right. Well, I don't hate The Walking Dead. <laughs> I don't love it the way I used to, but I don't hate it yet. I think there are other more fascinating texts that people should be considering. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but we will leave that to people to decide when they think about pitching. We'll be accepting pitches until February 15th. Okay. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.